I want you to imagine with me, say you have been on a trip, maybe you went away for one of summer camping trips that are infamous in our area and in our church, and you return home to find your home completely trashed. Your home has been broken into, shattered glass, personal and sensitive information strewn about. How would you feel? For some of you, this is no hypothetical. You have experienced this. And as I've talked to friends who have had this happen to them, they talk about how they feel almost violated. Someone, a stranger in their home, going through their things. This takes a little more imagination, but picture this. You go away on a trip, and this time, and this is a solo trip, all right? You go away on a solo trip, so maybe picture like Michael Lee, right, hiking the PCT. And when you return home from your journey, no one you know and love recognizes you. You're a stranger to your own family and friends. How do you think that would feel? Maybe Mark Whitcomb doesn't have to imagine this as <laughs> he left for vacation and had to reintroduce himself to all of us with his new hairdo. You know, I, I couldn't help but uh, think, you know, maybe from high school English class of Homer's The Odyssey, of how Odysseus was away in the Trojan War for 10 years and then imprisoned on an island, and then he returned home to his kingdom in Ithaca, and few recognized him. He, he came back as a beggar, and even his own wife wasn't sure who he was. But I don't, I don't want you to just relate to a fictional character from ancient literature. I want us to feel something of what Jesus must have felt 2,000 years ago, when he marched into the capital city of Jerusalem and entered the temple, when he came in to his house. Well, friends, welcome back to Mark's Gospel. After a three-week hiatus, uh, we've been walking through Mark's Gospel uh, this summer at a somewhat torrid pace uh, in this series entitled, Amazed and Confused in the Presence of Jesus. Uh, Today, we're going to consider Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and see how Jesus is received in the capital city. My prayer for us is that this is not just a Bible lesson, like, oh, this was interesting. Uh, Jesus came into the capital city. How was he received? I want us to consider for us today how we respond to the authority of Jesus as he comes to claim what is rightfully his. So here's my main argument for this morning from this text in Mark 11 through 13. Prepare for Christ's return by laying down your whole life. Prepare for Christ's return by laying down your whole life. Uh, My prayer, again, that we individually and as a church would prepare for Christ's return by turning from our natural innate opposition and, and pride uh, and that we would submit to Christ's authority in, in prayer. 
and humility and vigilance. So I'd invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11. You can find it on page 898 of the Black Pew Bibles that should be in front of you in the pews and the chairs in the balcony. Uh, Our text in Mark 11 begins with Jesus getting on a horse, or rather a donkey, and and riding into Jerusalem like a king. We just sang of that and even heard uh, a prophecy of that from Psalm 118. Uh, Jesus' triumphal entry would be a great sermon by itself. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, it's pregnant with meaning, so much Old Testament prophecy fulfilled as he rides as the king into the capital city. But here's the picture I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this text today. We are going to get on a horse, and we're not going to go out a walk or uh, a canter or a trot. We're going to be galloping through these three chapters Uh, We're not going to have time to address all the things that you might be curious about in these chapters. Uh, We're not even going to talk about Jesus cursing the fig tree. We're not going to talk about this amazing parable at the beginning of chapter 12, which is like the gospel of Mark in miniature in those first 12 verses of chapter 12. We're not going to talk about the abomination of desolation in chapter 13. So if that's why you're here, I'm sorry. Uh, We are going to try to narrow in on the main idea What will Jesus find when he enters his holy city, and especially when he comes into his temple? And how can we prepare for Christ's return today by laying down our whole life? And if you didn't already catch it, I think there's three ways, three main ways that we can prepare for Christ's return today in prayer and humility and in vigilance. Three ways that we prepare for the return of Christ, prayer humility, and vigilance. So first, let's consider how we prepare for Christ's return uh, in prayer. Prepare for His return in prayer. This is much of chapter 11. What is Jesus going to find when He enters His holy city, and especially when He comes into His temple? Uh, Well, in this point, we're going to consider Jesus' just first two days in Jerusalem. Day one goes by quick. Uh, But we're going to ask how today, unlike the temple authorities, we might prepare for Christ's return by submitting to Christ's authority uh, expressed in prayer, uh, coming out of faith in Him. Friends, we've been building to this moment in Mark's gospel. It's all been leading up to this. We won't read Mark 11, 1 through 10, but I'd encourage you to look down at that text and note the crowd is shouting, Hosanna. They're quoting Psalm 118 that Neil just read. Hosanna means, Lord, save us. They're confessing Jesus to be the Lord. But just as quickly as that crowd has gathered, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the crowd is gone. And we read this in Mark eleven eleven: He, that is Jesus, went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Uh, what, what was Jesus doing? Mark doesn't tell us, like, what was Jesus doing, you know, maybe late in the day or even in the evening at the temple by himself? Was he, you know, inspecting the temple foundations? Uh, you know, as a former carpenter, was he admiring the carpentry work there in the temple? Maybe he had a, one of those late-night audio tours, kind of as a tourist, checking things out. No. This is the calm before the storm. We're just getting started. So let's continue galloping along day two in the temple. Jesus enters the temple again. 
And this time we see how he really feels. Look at me, look with me at Luke or uh, Mark 11:15 through 18. They, that's Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem and he Jesus went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Did you notice what Jesus first calls the temple? My house. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56, 7 here at the end of this text, where twice Yahweh himself calls the temple a house of prayer, and particularly a house of prayer for the nations. And Isaiah 56, 7 isn't the only relevant Old Testament text for when Jesus comes into his temple. Malachi 3 tells us, Then the Lord, Yahweh, you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? Jesus has come as Lord and judge, and he's come into his house, and he announces his verdict. And the verdict is this. This house needs to come down. It doesn't just need a little reform or cleansing. It's too late for the center of Israel's worship because it's false worship that's going on in the Lord's house. It's a worship that rejects the entrance of the nations The the temple authorities had set up like almost like a grand bazaar in the court of the Gentiles. That was the only place that the Gentiles could worship the Lord. They had traveled all this way. The nations would come to the temple to worship Yahweh, and then they would find the only place that they could be was crowded with buying and selling. The temple had become a place of commerce instead of being a place of blessing to the nations, which is what God intended Israel to be. Ultimately, though, the temple rejects the master of the house when he comes in to the temple, when he appears. Instead of the temple authorities recognizing that the Lord has come, we see there in verses 19 and following that they planned to kill the master of the house. The center of Israel's worship has become the domain of Satan. And Jesus has come as the strong man to plunder his house. What does this have to do with us? Well, if Jesus were to come to our house today, what would he find? Now, I know there's a disconnect here. Our houses, our apartments, this church is not the temple of the Lord. God does call us as a church, though, temple and our bodies the temple. So if Jesus were to visit us, if he were to appear, what would he find in our houses? 
Would we recognize Jesus when he appears? What would he find in terms of faith? Would he find hypocrisy, exclusion of people who are not like us? Would he find prayer? Are we like the temple authorities and our lives are so crowded with so many things that we have pushed the Lord to the edges of our lives? Just like the Jews here push the Gentiles out. Do we push others and the Lord out because we have become so consumed with our own careers and families and hobbies and interests? Well, what was Jesus looking for when he showed up in the temple? Well, I think he tells us, calls his house a house of prayer for the nations. And then Jesus will go on in chapter 11, verses 22 and following, as he talks to his disciples. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 22. Jesus replied to them, and he's talking to his disciples here, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. And just to be clear, Jesus isn't teaching a name-it-claim-it prosperity gospel kind of prayer. He's teaching his disciples what must characterize the true house of God, and that's faith expressed in prayer, a faith that recognizes the Lord. So how do we recognize the Lord today? How do we recognize the Lord today? Well, how do we recognize other people? Don't we speak to them? We acknowledge them? John Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. Michael Reeves, a more current author, will go on to say in a great little book called Enjoy Your Prayer Life, prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. It means that prayerlessness is practical atheism, demonstrating a lack of belief about God. So what does your prayer life say about your faith? You know, I think it's really easy, I know for me, to think about prayer as a religious activity that we do. It's like something that I always know I should do more of and that I can feel guilty for not doing. But I think it's instructive how prayer is talked about in this text. Uh, Later in chapter 12, Jesus will call out the Pharisees for praying, praying long prayers for show to be seen by others. I think it's so easy, just like so many things in life, to make something like prayer all about us, something that we do to feel better about ourselves, something to bring ourselves peace and kind of center ourselves, almost just like the way that the world talks about meditation. But prayer, the prayer that is to characterize God's house and God's people is is something far different 
than today's meditation. It's acknowledging and accepting Jesus as our high priest and coming into the throne room of the creator of the universe himself. And it's recognizing his authority and his sovereignty in all things and saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's welcoming Jesus in faith. And Jesus didn't find that, to say the least, in the temple when he entered there on his second day in Jerusalem. Hinson, we should continue to think about this. How can our house be a house of prayer? How can we be a people of prayer? What does our prayer life say about how we are preparing for the return of the Lord? Mary Alice told us at the beginning, tonight we have an opportunity. We have a prayer service. We only have, are doing these once a month during the summer. You can come out tonight, not just as an opportunity to do a religious thing, to do ritual, but an opportunity to submit ourselves together as God's people to Him, to come under His authority, to come under the authority of King Jesus in humble dependence. You know, when Jesus came into His temple, the religious leaders should have laid down their arms, laid down their lives in worship. Jesus should have found them praying, or at least in humble submission to Him. But instead, the religious leaders doubled down in their pride, and they planned to kill the Lord of the temple. So in our next point, we will see the temple's opposition to the Son of Man grow. So number two, we prepare for His return in humility. You know, just to review the first two days in the temple, real quick, in case you zoned out. In our first point, we saw Jesus' first day in Jerusalem where he gave the temple the royal inspection. And then we considered on day two uh, how Jesus essentially declares that the temple is cursed and of Satan, to put it mildly. Then he, you know, kind of makes this big scene in the temple. I, I like to consider what the disciples might have thought when Jesus said, let's go back to the temple again today on day three. Uh, I think they would have been like, seriously, Uh, after yesterday, you know, don't you think maybe we should let those temple authorities, you know, cool off a little bit? Uh, Don't you want to see some other things in Jerusalem? We hear the Mount of Olives, it's nice this time of year. But no, Jesus is facing the music. He's going forward. And in the second point, we're going to consider how we can prepare for Christ's return uh, largely by way of contrast as we consider the proud opposition of the humble, of the uh, temple authorities and how we should respond instead in humility. So here's how you can track a lot of text uh, from the end of chapter 11 through the end of chapter 12. Like a heavyweight fight, Jesus is going to go five rounds with the religious leaders. And before he leaves the temple, Jesus will highlight what true, humble submission to his authority looks like from a surprising source. But now, the moment we've all been waiting for, Jesus versus the temple authorities. Jerusalem has come to Jesus into Galilee to oppose him, but now we have the main showdown. Round one, 
Look with me at Mark 11:28. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders come to Jesus and they ask, natural question after what happened the day before, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Essentially, the, the temple leaders are saying, who do you think you are? And what do you think you're doing? Now, if you're a Christian, how would you like Jesus to answer this question? I know for me, I would have liked him to call down angels at that moment or have another kind of transfiguration experience, like maybe have, you know, Elijah uh, and Moses plop down next to him. You know, the heavens open. He's like, what do you think of me now? Here's, here's my authority. But no, it's not how Jesus responds. He could have. He doesn't play games those who, with those who oppose him in pride. Miracles and visuals don't open spiritually blind eyes uh, of those who have hardened hearts. So Jesus answers his proud opponents in a way that exposes what they really worship. Do you see what it is there at the end of chapter 11? The crowd, their reputation, their power. Jesus has the final word in Mark 11:33. Round one clearly goes to Jesus. Jesus won, temple authorities, nothing. Round two. Skip down now to Mark 12, 13. This time, two ancient enemies have teamed up to try to take Jesus down, the Pharisees and the Herodians, naturally enemies, but they have come together in friendship due to a common enemy. It's wonderful how hate can bring people together, isn't it? Together they asked Jesus in 12, 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Once again, Jesus doesn't play games with hypocrites. He bests them with his answer, exposing their hypocrisy and their false humility. Jesus has the final word in 12:17, and the people are amazed at him. After round two, Jesus two, temple authorities, nothing. But the temple's not going to go down without a fight. So they bring out the most powerful and elite ruling class out of the temple to question Jesus. Round three, it's the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection v. Jesus. You know, I'm sure uh, Jesus was appreciating the irony here. The Sadducees are mocking Jesus' belief in the resurrection. And Jesus must have thought, in like a week's time, I will take up my life. I will be raised from the dead. Anyways, the Sadducees ask Jesus their question, which is like a riddle that goes on and on. In verses 18 through 23, Jesus responds. Listen to verse 24 and following. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus takes the Sadducees to their own authority. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as authoritative. So Jesus takes them to their source, and he exposes their unbelief. Just as he exposed the religious leaders' fear of man in round one, 
Just as he exposed the Herodians and Pharisees' hypocrisy in round two, here in round three, it goes to Jesus. He exposes their unbelief. It looks like this fight is going to be no contest. But then the pattern is broken in round four. Uh, Look with me, starting in verse 28 and 29. Instead of a group of religious or political leaders coming to trap Jesus in his words, a single scribe approaches. Listen to 1228. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Well, if you are familiar with the Bible, you will be familiar with uh, verses 29 through 30, where Jesus responds with the Shema. And the scribe retorts after Jesus gives that answer, yeah, nailed it. You're right. Which is interesting. After what we've seen in the first three rounds, essentially, you have the center of opposition from the temple, one scribe, come, ask Jesus a question, and then switch sides. He forfeits. He's like, yeah, actually, you're right. You're, you're wise. Jesus commends the scribe for his wisdom and declares in 1234 to the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, the crowd is observing all these exchanges, these first four rounds of of the opposition versus Jesus. And in 1234, we also read, and no one dared to question him any longer. He is clearly the heavyweight champion of the world. Jesus versus the temple has gone four rounds. Each time he has been asked a question, each time his authority has been demonstrated as piercing, wise, according to the scriptures themselves. Temple authorities leave with their tails between their legs, and one man has even forfeited and switched sides mid-fight. But the fight's not over. Jesus not, isn't done. Round five, the final round. Now Jesus goes on the offensive. He had been asked questions. Now he has a question for the crowds and for all who hear. As one biblical scholar put it, this is the question of the day somewhat similar to Jesus' question of his disciples in Caesarea Philippi when he asked them, who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? This question is a little more complicated for us today. Uh, You got to remember the context. We're in the temple. Uh, People there, they knew the Old Testament. They were familiar with Old Testament interpretation. Look with me at 12, 35 through 37. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 here, and he essentially asks them this, how can King David be greater than the Messiah when David himself calls the Messiah Lord? In other words, the Messiah, the Lord, is greater and has more authority than you could ever imagine. I mean, the temple was a throwback to the glory of the days of King David and King Solomon. It was all about King David and King Solomon. And Jesus says, the person who stands before you, essentially, is far greater than your ancient kings. And with that, mic drop. Verse 37, the large crowd listens with delight. 
I don't know if delight would be the word that the religious leaders would describe as them feeling. Jesus has gone five rounds with the religious leaders. In the first three, they asked him a question and got embarrassed. In the fourth, the religious leaders switched sides. The fourth, fifth and final round, Jesus demonstrates that his authority and his power is greater than they could have ever imagined. There shouldn't be any question about who's in charge now in this house. Jesus has shown uh, the proud, unbelieving, fearful, and mocking temple leaders from their own scriptures that this is his house. He is the Lord. Jesus demonstrates in the temple on the third day of his arrival his authority. Speaking of authority, I, I have a question for us, for many of us. Uh, particularly if you are here today and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, or maybe you grew up Christian but you're not practicing, or you have a, a lot of doubts and skepticism about if things here in the Bible are true. So here's my question. What would it take for you to accept Jesus' authority over your life? What would it take to submit to Jesus' authority? What would, he, what would Jesus need to do or say to prove that you owe him your whole life? Yeah, like, think about that. I think all of us should think about that. Maybe write down what your answer would be. What would Jesus have to do to prove that you owe him everything? I suggest that what you thought of, maybe what you wrote down, might be the path to revealing the real authority in your own life, the real center of your life, if you will. Well, Jesus is almost done with the temple for good, but before he leaves, he brings his home, his point home at the end of chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes, who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive the harsher judgment. Watch out for those guys. And instead, look at 12, 41 through 44. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Literally, Jesus says there in verse 44, she lays down her whole life. Look out for those hypocritical religious leaders contrasted instead. Look instead at this poor widow. The scribe agreed with Jesus uh, in his answer, he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. This widow is part of the kingdom of God because of how she lays down her whole life in humble service, in dependence 
on the Lord. Jesus shows us who will enter the kingdom of God by way of contrast here. The religious leaders miss the boat. But this poor widow lays down her life in humility. She gives everything she has. And friends, this is not a proof text for tithing. This isn't about giving to charity. This woman is a beautiful contrast to the fear of man, the unbelief, the mocking, and the hypocrisy of the temple leaders. Jesus has come into his house with great authority and in judgment. But then we pause here in this final scene in the temple and imagine his heart swelling with love and pride as he sees this poor woman who has devoted her whole life to the Lord. She was ready for the return of the Lord into his temple. And friends, all our religious activity is bankrupt if we are not humbly devoted to the Lord in love. All of it is worthless. Henson, I think there's a word for us here. We are right to focus as a church on being deliberate and intentional and doing church according to the nine marks, which we trust is according to God's Word. But let's be careful that in our efforts to do things correctly, to have right theology, to be polished, to exalt, not exalt, but to highlight people who are gifted in making God's Word clear and teaching God's Word, that in all those things, we don't miss Jesus. This would be deeply ironic, just like it was for the religious leaders to miss Jesus when He showed up in the temple, because God's Word is all about Jesus. But sometimes, I think, if we're honest, uh, we forget that following Jesus, according to Him, is all about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus in humility. Again, we we rightfully, we admire the gifted uh, teachers here. We are thankful for all our teachers' gifts. But you see here what pleases Jesus most here at the end of chapter 12. Humility, devotion, love. Now, what does this look like? Laying down your whole life for Jesus? What does that mean? It's not going to mean necessarily giving all your money to the church or going uh, to the mission field or going into full-time ministry. In fact, for most of us, it will mean none of those things. But it will mean living a life of humble obedience to the Lord. And that's going to be a community project. This is why we have the church. So consider, how can you grow in humility as you interact with people in this church? often people who are very different from you, people who have different ways of thinking about politics, career, success, money, entertainment, food, drink, raising kids, schooling kids, marriage, singleness. Many of us have a diversity of opinions and even some strong convictions on those things. 
But strong convictions on those things I don't think is necessarily what pleases the Lord the most. How can we grow in humility when people confront us about sin in our lives or blind spots? Maybe they're wrong, (laughs) but how can we use that as an opportunity to grow in humility? Or how can we grow in humility when others sin against us and we become so consumed with other people's faults? How can we grow in humility in our speech. I've asked this many times before, but here's another opportunity. Maybe today. Just ask one person who knows you well. Any thoughts on how I could grow in humility? Any feedback for me? Well, friends, Jesus came with great authority, and he blew away the opposition. But he wasn't showing off. He had returned to his house so that we might come to an end of ourselves and enter his kingdom. And it's that coming kingdom that we're going to consider third and finally. Prepare for the return. Prepare for his return in vigilance. Well, in 13.1, Jesus is leaving the temple. But he isn't done judging it. Uh, In A.D. 70, and some of you will know this history, uh, just like three decades or so after these things were written here in Mark, Jerusalem was invaded, and the temple was sacked by a Roman general named Titus. So here in Mark 13, Jesus is essentially prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. Uh, And he's doing that to prepare his followers, the readers of this, it will be prior to the fall of Jerusalem. That's why we know kind of around the time when Mark was written, or one of the ways that we know, before 70 AD. But here's something that's kind of interesting about Mark 13 one of the many interesting things, Uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is interlaced, interwoven with Jesus talking about his return, the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, So they're they're interlaced throughout, and sometimes it's difficult as we just read it as one chapter to understand when Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem and when he's talking about his his return. Now, you guys have been listening very patiently. If I were to take time to explain uh, everything in these verses, we would be here all day, and you may leave with more uh, questions than have answers. This is undoubtedly one of definitely the most complicated chapter in all of Mark and maybe in all the Gospels. However, I think the main point is clear. I think the main point is clear. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be obsessed with the when of when these things will take place, the fall of Jerusalem, the coming of the Son of Man, as much as he wants to prepare them for how they should respond in preparation. Just to use where Jesus concludes, look down at Mark 13, 37. Here at the end of this chapter, Jesus says, and what I say to you, disciples, I say to everyone, be alert. Vigilance is another word for this idea of being alert. And so I just want to briefly consider, as we conclude, four ways that we can prepare for Christ's return in vigilance. Four ways. We're going to go quick. First, in verses 5 through 8, we see that vigilance means trusting God's sovereign plan. We've been singing of this already in the service. God's plan is being worked out no matter how bad it gets. 
No matter how things seem to be spiraling out of control, we can sometimes wonder when we look around at this world as we read the news, what is God doing? Jesus says these things must happen. God is working out His sovereign plan and purposes, and these are the birth pains before the end. So, we should trust God that He is solidly in control. This is the beginning of the end. We are living in the last days. So, how are you doing trusting the Lord when it seems like the world and maybe even your own life is spiraling out of control? What might a confident hope in the Lord and His purposes look like even as you look at these verses? Second, in verses 9 through 13, we see that vigilance means preaching the gospel. When Jesus says, watch, be alert, he's not talking about like constantly like looking out the window or going up on the roof and saying, oh, is he coming yet? Is he coming? No, he, he's given us a job to do. That's clear in these verses. We have to be preaching the gospel despite opposition and bringing the gospel to all nations. You know, as we think about preaching the gospel I admit with you, it is hard to preach the gospel in Portland. I mean, it's hard to preach the gospel, period, because of fear of man, all sorts of reasons. Uh, But here in Portland, it can seem so often, like even just culturally, that people aren't interested in the gospel, right? They're not interested in hearing this message. But let me encourage us, when you do talk about the gospel, I had the opportunity to talk about the gospel with someone a few weeks ago, and I was like surprised that he was interested to talk about these things. So let's not assume that people are disinterested just by, by their facial expressions. Let's, let's press on in faith. We live in a sick and a dying world where opposition is strong and it's coming for us, but we must persevere and continue preaching the gospel and be a part of bringing the gospel to all the nations. So, Lord willing, coming up this next year, we will have the opportunity to, to partner with our brother and sister, Andy and Lindsay Matsuoka, and their family, and, and sending them, uh, we trust, to, to Taiwan uh, so they can be a part of establishing a church that will do church planting in places that we cannot go. So, vigilance means preaching the gospel to the nations. So, what might that priority, like what might missions as a priority in your life look like this next week? How can missions and preaching the gospel be more of a priority as you are vigilant in preparing for Christ's return? Third, verses 14 through 23, we see vigilance means watching that we aren't led astray. There will be many smart people who come with compelling reasons why this is not true and trustworthy. That is nothing new. That has been happening since the beginning. Uh, We have a whole, you have a whole bunch of podcasts that you can choose from where that uh, podcast speaker can become your authority. And you can become, as as you listen to this person, you can become led astray and deceived from the truth because of how you're washing your mind in different voices. You know, other authorities in this life are going to seem attractive and reasonable, but we must be suspicious of ourselves and our pride. Don't be led astray. Isn't that what we see in verses 14 through 23? Are there some areas where you are vulnerable 
to being led astray? Maybe that would be a good thing to talk about with someone today. If Satan were to take you down, cause you to doubt this, cause you to doubt and astray from Christ, how would he do it? Think like C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters. How would he go after you? Maybe talk about that with someone today. Fourth, and finally, in verses 24 through 37, vigilance means being alert. And I want to contrast with this with the idea of spiritual lethargy, spiritual sleepiness. Uh, listen to Mark 13, 32 through 37. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. I know I can become spiritually sleepy. What about you? I can become lethargic, especially when my life gets busy with lots of things. I can push to the edge, communing with the Lord in prayer, receiving from his word, pursuing gospel community, fellowship, accountability, discipleship. And and I'm a pastor. That's like my job to do a lot of those things. It's so easy to become sleepy spiritually. But let's allow even this reminder in Mark 13 to be like the light switch to turn the light back on that wakes us up. Sometimes the Lord and His kindness can use just one prayer, one song, one sermon, one word of challenge or encouragement from a friend to wake us up from spiritual slumber. Will you humble yourself today to let even this time together be that wake-up call? We've seen four ways. There's at least four ways that we can be vigilant as we lay down our whole lives in preparation for Christ's return. Are you being vigilant over your life? Are you trusting God's sovereignty in difficult times? Are you preaching the gospel? Are you watching your life that you're not led astray? Are you guarding yourself from spiritual lethargy? This is our privilege to live like this. This is a joy to live in view of what will certainly happen. Jesus will return. There's no doubt about it. He has kept all his promises. He is coming back. So are we ready? Are we living like that's true? Are we submitting to his authority today by laying down our whole lives in prayer, in humility, and in vigilance? In Homer's The Odyssey, when Odysseus finally comes home, as I mentioned earlier, not even his wife, Penelope, recognized him fully at first. Like, she wasn't completely sure. But then she saw her husband do the things that only he could do. And her eyes were opened. Friends, Jesus came and did what only the Lord could do.
what no temple authorities would have ever even dreamed of. Jesus rode into Jerusalem and came into his house with an authority that was out of this world. But at the end of the day, the Son of Man would demonstrate his authority in the most ironic way. He laid down his life. He laid down his life for proud rebels who are consumed with self like you and like me. He told his disciples that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord. He has the right to lay it down, and he has the right to take it up again. Three days after laying down his life, that's exactly what Jesus did. Only Jesus, the greater son of David, could do this. Only the Son of Man could come into his temple like this. The question for you and I is, will we lay down our lives in humble submission to him? We submit to Christ's authority every day by turning from our sin and repentance and trusting that in Christ alone is the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Today, you may find yourself not far from the kingdom of God. The question is, will you lay your life down in submission to the one who laid down his life for you? Listen to how it will end. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Are we ready for that day? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would forgive us for the ways that we live in pride and ignorance like life will always go on like it has before. Lord, we know even from the last few years that that is not the case. Things can change in an instant. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to your plan, to your sovereignty. We pray that you would humble us as we consider your word, as we consider your son who laid down his life for sinners like us. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray that you would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.